You are listening to a message from Redemption Community Church, a life-giving church in Westchester County, New York. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or follow our messages online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the message. All right. Good to see everybody. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption, and I'm so glad you chose to worship with us today. We're going to be continuing a series that Pastor Jeremy started last week on 1 Corinthians. We're talking about uh, how to be a counterculture. And so, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, and Corinth was a city, a port city, very similar to New York City. It was a Uh, It was actually a cosmopolitan hub of culture and commerce and intellect, but it was also a hub of immorality and idolatry. And so Paul is uh, writing to this church because there's a lot of different problems that he has to address with them. He's dealing with disunity. He's dealing with sexual immorality. He's dealing with the abuse of Christian freedom and spiritual gifts and a wrong understanding of the resurrection. And, you know, overall, it's about 10 different problems that Paul is writing to the Corinthians about. And if that wasn't enough, he has to write a second letter in 2 Corinthians to deal with even more problems going on with the Corinthian church. And so, um, and so what, we're, uh, what we're, gonna, we're talking about uh, in this series is how Jesus wants us not to simply oppose culture, and on the other hand, he doesn't want us to blindly assimilate with it. What he wants is he wants us to be a loving counterculture in the midst of it. And so last week, Pastor Jeremy talked to us about how unity can only happen uh, if we come together around a hope in Jesus that is larger than our differences. Um, and so I want to continue, I want to ask you to continue to be reading uh, through 1 Corinthians together as a church family. This week I want to encourage you to read chapters 3 through 5. Today, uh, my message is titled, Act Your Age. Act Your Age. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, I love to talk about my kids because I'm proud of them. And one of the ways that I get, one of the ways that they earn their keep around the house is that I use them in sermon illustrations. <laughs> uh, they don't do anything else. So, uh, so JP, John Pierre, my son, when he was really young, uh, one of the things that my wife and I did was we had this little song that helped him to act his age. Uh, JP had, uh, he struggled with not turning and looking at us and paying attention when we started talking to him. He didn't continue playing with his toys or, you know, whatever he was doing. And so we came up with this song, and it goes like this. I'm a big boy now, and I know how to act. When someone talks to me, I stop, I look, I listen, and respond. That's what we did to help him learn to act his age, okay? And, um, you know, so this week we're going to talk about acting Uh, our age. Did your parents ever tell you to act your age? Did your teachers ever tell you to act your age? And today, I, you know, I wonder about you. I wonder if you are acting your age spiritually, for those of you that are followers of Christ. You know, we don't always act our age, do we? Uh, But the same is true spiritually. We don't always act our age spiritually. I, you know, I remember a time in college uh, when I was eating lunch in the dining hall, and I was gossiping about some other friends in our friend, friend group. They weren't 
with us at the table. And my brothers and sisters in Christ called me out on it right there at the table. And they said, basically, you got to act your age. And when you're talking about people, to speak positively about them, to build them up and not tear them down. I think we all struggle with acting our age spiritually. Maybe for some of you, um, like I did in college, you find yourself sometimes tearing down others behind their back, gossiping and damaging their character and reputation. Uh, Maybe uh, for some of you, you get offended by your brother and sister at home and you don't talk to them for a couple days. Or maybe uh, if it's here in the church, you get offended by a brother and sister in Christ and you don't show up on Sunday, you're watching the service at home online because you want to avoid that person. We get on social media and we say things that aren't filled with love for people. So as a Christian, let me ask you today, are you acting your age spiritually? For the Corinthians, they had a hard time acting their age. They had a hard time acting spiritually mature. And even what they thought was spiritually mature wasn't. And that's why Paul is writing to them in this letter. When it comes to being spiritual, you know, there's really no agreed upon definition of what it means to be a spiritual person. You go on Amazon and you can find things, books about spirituality. Uh, You know, um, a lot of movies, a lot of songs have spiritual themes in them. And you know, outside the church, there are a lot of definitions about what it means to be spiritual. Maybe uh, some people would say if you pray a lot, if you meditate, you drink bottled water, you recycle, you do yoga, you put your feet behind your head, that makes you spiritual. If you're a good person, you give money to charity, you go uh, overseas and sit with a guru, maybe those types of things make you spiritual. And in their church, there are different, different definitions of what it means to be spiritual as well, what it means to be a real spiritual, spiritual person. And depending on what church you go to, it means different things. In some churches, if you speak in tongues, you're on the varsity team, and that makes you really spiritual. In other churches, you have to memorize a lot of Bible verses, and that makes you spiritual. Uh, In other churches, maybe it's a certain type of music, or you memorize certain types of prayers, and that makes you spiritual. And the question remains, what makes a spiritual person, a spiritually mature person? How does someone become spiritually mature, and what does it even mean to be spiritually mature? You know, in the Corinthian church, people had a big disagreement over what it meant to be spiritual. Some said that if you were married, you were spiritual. Some said if you were single, you were spiritual. Some said that if you um, were sexually active, you were spiritual. Some said if you were chaste, you were spiritual. Some said if you, were, got, if you got drunk, you were spiritual. Some said if you didn't get drunk, you were spiritual. Some said it was when you were rich. Some said when it were, you were poor, when you were young, when you were old. Those things might make you spiritual. And, and so they all broke into teams in Corinth and saying that this is what it means to be truly a spiritual person. So Paul tries to clear up all these understand, misunderstandings, and he does so by simply telling them that to be spiritually mature means that you are filled with, led by, and empowered by God the Holy Spirit. That's what it means, that being spiritual is not necessarily about something that we do. Being spiritual is something that God does in us to change us. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which we're going to look at today, Paul's explaining in this passage how God works through his Holy Spirit to make us spiritually mature. So our big idea today is God is calling us to embrace spiritual maturity. And I'm going to suggest three 
things that are gonna help you embrace spiritual maturity today. To pursue godly teaching, second, to pursue godly wisdom, and third, to pursue godly humility. So let's start off by looking at what it means to pursue godly teaching. Paul starts off in this chapter talking about preaching, the preaching that he did when he was with them. He says in verse one, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you with eloquence or human wisdom. He wasn't the best speaker in the world. Other people had higher IQs than he did. And he continues on, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. So what he's doing is he's comparing him to other preachers of the day. And let me ask you this. Uh, We, don't you think that we have a lot of people around us preaching to us every day? We are preached at all the time. Our world is filled with preachers. You go on YouTube and you go on your Facebook video feed, a sermon, a message is being preached. You listen to a song on Spotify, a sermon, a message is being preached. You read a book, a sermon, a message is being preached, right? You go to a class, a sermon, a message is being preached. You look at an Instagram ad, you consume whatever marketing or advertising that is around you, a sermon, a message is being preached, and it's all these mediums through which people preach to you all the time. Paul continues and says in verse two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says in verse one that he preached the testimony about God. And then in verse two, he says that his preaching is centered on Jesus. In other words, the most important message for the follower of Jesus is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection Um, Christianity is not about self-help or positive thinking or to get you a little inspired to try harder in life. It's the message that Jesus has done. Listen, Jesus has done for you what you can't do for yourself. Amen? That's why we need to intentionally submit ourselves to godly teaching. We need to be rooted in our church family, in a church family that teaches the word of God. That's why being together on Sundays is not optional. One pastor said it's oxygen for the soul. This is why we need to be connected in a life group where we're studying God's word with other believers. That's why we need to go through the book of 1 Corinthians together that reminds us of the power of the gospel to transform every area of our lives and that can help us with life's questions and issues. This is why we need to be reading the word of God on a daily basis. So let's acknowledge that it's countercultural to submit ourselves to godly teaching, to allow something outside of ourselves, the word of God, to allow it to correct us when needed. It's countercultural to submit our will to God's will because the prevailing wisdom, as you know, of our culture is to do what's right for you, what makes you happy, what makes you feel fulfilled. Now, whether you're a parent or not, we've all been a kid, right? And you know with kids that they, whatever, whatever they want, it's not always best for them, is it? Uh, a number of years ago, I was at my brother-in-law's house, and my niece, who was really small at the time, she, she, alert, she was walking, and she came into the kitchen, pulled a chair up to the counter, went into the cupboard, pulled out an entire box of Oreo cookies, and then ate the entire box. Was that what she wanted to do? Yes. <laughs> was it best for her? No. And I want you to remember that, you know, 
submitting our will to God's will is what's best for us. We might not want it, but it's what's best for us. Do you, do you friends, believe that God knows what's best? Do you trust God enough to know, to believe that he knows what's best? So pursuing godly teaching is how we grow in spiritual maturity. To embrace spiritual maturity, we need to pursue godly teaching. Second, we need to pursue godly wisdom. God makes us spiritually mature through wisdom that is counter-cultural. In verses six and seven, Paul says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare whose wisdom? God's wisdom. Now, let me remind you that uh, Paul is writing to a church uh, in the Greek world, right? Corinth was a Greek city, and they were uh, really big on debating the latest philosophies and human wisdom of the day. And, you know, we, we took history class. We learned about Plato and Aristotle and those, and those guys. And one of the problems that the Corinthians were experiencing is that they were being so influenced by the wisdom of the pagan culture around them that it was affecting their spiritual growth. And guess what? The same thing can happen to us today. Listen, some source of wisdom is always influencing you. Some source of wisdom is always influencing you. The question is, which source are you going to pursue? The wisdom of the fallen world or the wisdom of the Spirit of God? Now, some of you might think, Pastor Dave, you know what? No one is influencing me. I think for myself. But actually, very often, we're being influenced and we don't even know it. You know, take, for example, somebody who's, in, who's under the influence of alcohol. Uh, what does alcohol do to a person? Well, it affects the way that you think. It affects the way that you talk, right? Um, it, it affects uh, the, what's funny. It affects who you think is attractive. Your judgment is the first thing to go. You don't realize that you're under the influence of alcohol when you're under the influence of alcohol, right? So what if we become so intoxicated by the wisdom and influence of our culture that we don't even realize that we've been drifting away from God? How far under the influence are we? I want you to pay attention to the sources of wisdom in your life, friends. Preachers you're listening to online, friends, coworkers, the media that you're consuming. If all of your friends think one way, that's going to influence you. Let me ask you this, what's more important, being accepted by your friend group or living God's best in your life? Caring what he thinks. Now, my wife and I, uh, we had some friends when we lived in Montreal whose marriage was falling apart. And I remember the husband tell, telling me, he's like, Dave, you know, my wife is hanging out with these friends that don't love Jesus, that are giving her all of this bad advice. They're saying things to her like, you should leave him. You need to be happy. Uh, you know, uh, you deserve to be happy. Uh, you need to end your marriage. And the Things got worse and worse and worse. Um, his wife stopped going to church, stopped spending time with other Christians, stopped reading her Bible. But you know what? She had an aha moment, and God helped her to see that she was following the wisdom of the world that was going to lead to the destruction of her marriage. And she turned back to God, and I can share with you the joy that they are still together, this couple. Their oldest daughter just graduated from high school, and they are still following Jesus to this day. Amen? 
what sources of wisdom are you listening to? What sources of wisdom are you listening to? Now, this doesn't mean that the world's wisdom is always wrong, but when the prevailing wisdom of the culture clashes with the wisdom of God's word, we choose his wisdom. God's wisdom says be generous and open-handed. The world's wisdom focuses us on materialism, right? How frequently do we see so many opportunities to spend money on things that are supposed to make us happy, how, but how many opportunities do we have to know how we can be generous to those in need? Very different. God's wisdom says to forgive when you wanna get even, to be others-focused versus me-focused, to choose sexual integrity versus doing what feels good. The wisdom of the culture versus the wisdom of the world. And I wanna look at some uh, other things about wisdom of the culture and wisdom of God with you today. I want us to do a little participation, okay? So I'm gonna read uh, the wisdom of the, what the culture says. I'd like you to read with me the wisdom of what God says, okay? So we're gonna do this together. The wisdom of culture says promote yourself. The wisdom of God says deny yourself. The wisdom of culture says consume. The wisdom of God says give. The wisdom of culture says, hate those who hurt you. The wisdom of God says, bless those who curse you, love your enemies. The wisdom of culture says, pursue things. The wisdom of God says, pursue God. The wisdom of culture says, live for now. The wisdom of God says, live for eternity. The wisdom of culture says, pursue happiness. The wisdom of God says, pursue righteousness. There's a difference, worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. And so the wisdom of this world is not the wisdom of God. And if you like the results that other people are experiencing, uh, you, you look around you and you see the results that the world is experiencing, the, the things that are happening in people's lives who are prioritizing all the other wisdom around them, but except for God's wisdom, then you're going to experience the same types of things, the crippling debt, the broken relationships, constant anxiety, no sense of purpose. But I'd encourage you to align yourself with the wisdom of God because what he has for you is more than we can even imagine. It's so much better. Paul tells us that the wisdom of God was a mystery to humanity. It says, no, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. The religious leaders and the Roman leaders, they didn't know what God was up to, did they? Now, Paul's talking about a mystery here, and it's not a mystery in the sense of something that's being unsolved. He, what he's saying, it's a mystery in the sense of something that's been concealed that has now been revealed. And what is being revealed is, is the, the mystery about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and, and that's the wisdom that Paul wants you to know. It's right there in the Word of God. Read the Gospel. Read about Jesus. Let that sink into your heart and mind. Let it saturate who you are. One preacher said you should be so immersed in God's truth that if somebody were to cut you, you would bleed bibline. In verses 9 and 10, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. What God has planned for us is so much better than we could ever imagine. Tim Keller says that other religions have teachers that show the way of salvation. Only Christianity has somebody that is the way of, of salvation. 
Christianity is about God's grace, him showing his grace to us, his unmerited favor, his unconditional affection. Who could have ever imagined God doing these types of things? In Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. We have a God of second chances. We have unity in the church. We have oneness in purpose. We have peace, patience, joy, and the list can go on. But I want, friends, to bring it down to where you live today. I wanna bring it home to your hearts this morning. God has opened the way for restoration of relationships versus holding a grudge and staying isolated. Accountability with close friends versus anonymity, real and lasting joy that comes from a relationship with the living God versus fleeting happiness based on the latest purchase or business deal. Paul continues in verses 11 and 13 saying, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Paul tells us that one of the Holy Spirit's roles is to communicate and reveal to us the wisdom of God. That is extremely powerful. And what we have without the Holy Spirit is not enough. You might be amazingly talented, educated, and connected, but in order to embrace spiritual maturity, you're going to need something more. You're going to need to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so that brings us to our final principle for embracing spiritual maturity, to pursue godly humility, to pursue godly humility. So, you want to, so we want to embrace godly teaching, we want to embrace godly wisdom, and then thirdly, we want to embrace godly humility. In verse 15 and 16, Paul says, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And let me point out that first part of 15. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. How many things? All things. When we pursue godly humility, we let others speak into our lives. The point that Paul is making is that if you have the Holy Spirit, you can make judgments about all things, including whether someone is living God's best in their life or not. Paul's making judgments about the Corinthians' conduct, okay? We, we saw that he is judging um, them in a moral, in, with moral discernment, right, according to the mind of Christ to help other, the other believers that are in Corinth. So he's doing this in chapter one. We've already talked about that last week as it relates to the division that was happening as certain people in the church were claiming affiliation with different leaders. And a little later on, we'll see in the next chapters, um, we'll see next week that Paul is judging a person who's sleeping with his stepmother. So if you're a Christian, other Christians need to help you see what you aren't doing. Other Christians need to help you live God's best in your life but not in the spirit of self-righteousness, but in the spirit of loving correction. Galatians chapter six says, brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in the spirit of gentleness. Pastors like Paul have the right to speak into your life. As those who have the spirit, we allow people who also have the spirit who love Jesus, who are embracing spiritual maturity to speak into our lives, to critique our conduct and our beliefs. It doesn't mean that everybody gets to do this, but that we have people in our lives who are qualified to do so. That's all. 
The important thing is that we do have these people. Let me ask you today, who are those people for you? Who are those people that you allow to speak into your life? Christians that can admonish you, that can correct you. Or are you somebody that sees yourself primarily as an individual that stands alone before God, where attempts by other Christians to admonish or correct you feel unwelcome? Which one are you? Now, I enjoy golf sometimes, and uh, I actually go over to this place called Game On, uh, practice range in Elmsford, uh, to do practicing at different times throughout the summer. And a couple years ago, my son and I, we actually went over there and hit some balls. And uh, there was this older gentleman that was practicing just in front of me. We had a nice little chat with him, and then I started, uh, I started practicing. And it didn't take long. He turned, he turned around, got down, and came over, and he said, hey, you know, your game could be a lot better if you stopped moving your hips so much. Now, I've been playing golf for over 30 years, <laughs> and I was a little taken back, I gotta admit, and I felt like that advice was a little unwelcome, but you know what? I took his advice, and it really did help my game. Do you have somebody in your life that can speak into it and help you to live God's best in your life, who can bring admonishment and correction? We need to remember that we don't do this type of thing, though, in a spirit of the reigning politics of our day, where it's offered and received with an adversarial spirit. We do this with the politics of the body of Christ, believing that we are in this struggle together, and at another time and place, the roles of the admonisher and the one that's being admonished will be reversed. Then we will have reason to hope that God will use our clumsy efforts to help one another. You know, I asked a good friend of mine to share an example of this in his marriage, and he gave me permission to share it with you. My friend Bill, he eats really healthy, and he hardly touches sugar. And his daughters have been talking to him about how he tends to make comments when they eat junk food that make them feel really bad about eating the food that they're eating. Uh, he'll say things like, hey, I think you put a little too much sugar on that or in that. He'll, he'll say, oh, I think you put a little bit too much chocolate on your sundae. And, and so shortly after this, um, Sue, his wife, uh, they she took the whole family to the, to the supermarket. They got some ice cream. And when they came back to the house, uh, Bill, he took one bite and, they, and then he just left the rest as the whole family was eating their ice cream and, and finishing their ice cream. And, and later on, Sue said to Bill, hey, this was a chance for you to show the kids that it's okay not to have a perfectly healthy diet, <laughs> to enjoy some junk food from time to time. And so coming out of that time, uh, that experience and the conversation with Sue, Bill started to try harder to listen to his wife, to listen to his kids, to be a little bit more gracious about um, uh, differences in food preferences and lifestyle preferences. And, and so for Sue, Bill recently had pointed out that she has a tendency to be fairly critical of him, uh, not just once or twice, but she has this as a tendency. And you know, this was actually a small victory for Bill because it's hard for him to, it's, it's, it's just generally hard for him to speak up and point things out like this to, to Sue. Um, but Sue really listened well. She took it, took it to heart, and she really made an effort to be less critical in general. And so Bill said that, we're, we're, you know, we're doing better. We're not perfect, but we're doing better speaking into each other's lives. He said, you know, we are less fearful now of addressing issues. And when we do address issues, it's less touchy than it was earlier in our marriage, even, even just five years ago. There's less tension, less us versus them stuff. There's more trust 
that we are for each other even when we bring up something that's hard. More than anything else, it takes humility and a receptive heart that loves Jesus and welcomes the Holy Spirit and embraces God's truth. That's what it takes. Lastly, in verse 16, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. If you're following Jesus today, I wanna to encourage you, you have the mind of Christ. Can you imagine having the mind of Einstein or the mind of Steve Jobs or the mind of Mozart? We have something far greater as followers of Jesus. We have the mind of Christ. Take hope in that as you think about embracing spiritual maturity. And imagine a church with the mind of Christ that embraces spiritual maturity, where there's unity and oneness of purpose, where marriages that are on the verge of divorce are restored and made whole, where bitterness and grudges are replaced with forgiveness and grace, where people escape crippling debt and find financial freedom so that they can be more generous with those in need, where there's less anxiety and more peace, where there is a community that's less defensive and where there's more humility, where others are given permission to speak into each other's lives. What a church that would be if we would act our age. So let's commit. Let's commit to pursuing godly teaching. Let's commit to pursuing godly wisdom and godly humility to become what God desires us and our church to become. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come before you and we ask that you would be reminding us in the struggles of life that we have the mind of Christ. As we struggle with messing up one more time in that area that we wanted to mature in, that we would rest on your grace rest on your forgiveness and know that because of the Holy Spirit, that because of the Holy Spirit in our life, we can continue to become the person that you want us to be. And God, as, as we listen to all the preachers around us, as we hear all of these voices around us, help us to discern, help us to prioritize your voice, your wisdom above all. And it's in your son Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. If you'd like to connect with us or learn more about our church, please visit us online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. We hope you can listen or join us next week.